Welcome to the Encounter Church Podcast. We believe this message will encourage you as you grow your faith and your relationship with Jesus. Grab your notebook and a pen as we get right into the message. Today we are in week eight of an incredible series where we're processing through the Old Testament. We're taking a look at some of these amazing stories of the Bible. Perhaps they're stories that you grew up in the church knowing. For some of you, this is the first time you've ever heard this story. But we're taking the time to not just tell the story, but to put meat upon the story, to to give action steps to the story, to help us to have moments of applicable behavior to the story so that maybe down the road you're, you're going through a situation or a circumstance and God can say to you, do you remember the time that we talked about fill in the blank? Throughout this series, I'm going to challenge you to take really, really good notes. Maybe it's the paper copy of the notes or maybe you go to the YouVersion app or our church app and you grab the digital copy of the notes. But I think it's going to be important that not only do you take the notes, but you file them away for another time because I believe that God's going to use this series for not only weeks to come, but years to come in your life. We've already looked at creation. We've looked at Noah's Ark, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Isaac, and so many more. But today I want to move into Exodus chapter 5, verse 11, where we see Moses beginning to step out in obedience to this call that God laid upon his life. Now, last week, we started this story, and I shared with you a conversation that Moses had with God via the burning bush. Do you remember that? Now, in the middle of that conversation, Moses approaches the bush, and God says, stop where you are, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground, and they began to have this conversation, and God says to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him this, let my people go. So what does Pharaoh do? Instantly, he rises up and said, all right, I've accepted the challenge, I'm ready to go, let's do this. Is that, is that what he did? No, no. Excuse after excuse came out. Pharaoh explaining to God all the reasons why he wasn't the guy for the job. Now we're going to get into that just a little bit more today. But here we are. We find ourselves face to face with Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron are now going to have a conversation with Pharaoh to cry out and say, would you let God's people, the Israelites, out of slavery? You see, the Israelites have been in slavery for about 430 years at this point. God saw the struggle they were going through. He saw the harsh conditions that they were in. And out of mercy and grace for his people, God is sending Moses and Aaron in to have this conversation with Pharaoh. Take a look what it says in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, after this presentation to Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh. They told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Now, let me ask you, how did that meeting go? I mean, did Pharaoh look at Moses and Aaron and go, oh, well, since God said so, I should let the people go. So let all the Israelites free, everybody, let them go and just let them go into the wilderness where they want to go. They'll have the festival. It's going to be a great time. Is that what happened? 
Okay, you guys are quiet. It's going to be a long morning if you don't speak up a little bit. Is that what happened? No, no. Pharaoh, time and time again, he kind of resisted. He pushed back. This led to a battle of power between God and Pharaoh. God sends plague after plague on Egypt, yet each and every time, Pharaoh pushes back even harder. He pulls back on the reins. He refuses to allow the Israelites to go free. So today, I want to take a few moments And I want to look at three character traits that we see occurring in this story that really, if we're honest with ourselves, we have the potential of applying to our lives today. Look at the first choice. We find a reluctant leader. Now, I don't want to take a whole lot of time on this particular one because we really talked about it a lot last week. But I feel that it's important that we take a few minutes and really begin to push into this, because there are several of us in this room, if we were honest with ourselves, we can relate to Moses. You see, several times in Moses' conversation with God, Moses comes up with excuses and reasons why he's not the guy. He says, I don't know what to do. No one's going to believe me if I go to them and tell them that God spoke to me They're going to say, are you sure that God spoke to you? And I'm going to say, I believe so. And they're going to say, well, what's his name? And I don't even know what to call you. Excuse after excuse. I'm just not qualified. I'm not sure I'm the right guy. In fact, in verse 13, it says this, but Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send someone Have you been there before? Moments in your life that God's calling you to take the lead on something, but for one reason or another, you come up with the reasons why you're just not qualified. Somebody else would do a a better job. Somebody else has a greater amount of ability. Someone else has a skill set for this. I'm just not the right guy. Would you send somebody else? We become this reluctant leader. I did a quick Google search on reluctant leader, and here's what I discovered for a definition. Someone hesitant or unwilling to take on a leadership role. Have you been there? But ultimately rises to the occasion and becomes an effective leader. Why do we hesitate? When God God calls us to accomplish a task, when God calls us to step into this role, why is it that oftentimes we come up with the reasons why we can't do it? We devalue ourselves. We doubt our ability. We doubt our knowledge. And some of us in the room, we even doubt that we're leaders. It's John C. Maxwell that says it this way, leadership is influence, nothing more nothing less. I'm here to tell you today that 99.375% of us have influence. Now, I made up that statistic, but that's okay. 97.3% of all statistics are made up. It's all right. 
The majority of you in the room today are a leader. You have influence. Perhaps you're a student at school or even at college. You've got a circle of influence. You've got people around you. You communicate on a regular basis. You have influence over them. Maybe it's at the workplace. Maybe you have an office job and there's a water cooler that you hang around at and you have conversation there and you have influence amongst the other workers. Perhaps as mom and dad in your household, you have influence on your children. You see, every one of us at some capacity in some way or another, we have influence in our life. Therefore, we are leaders. And contrary to popular belief, the reward that comes with leadership is worth the headache that accompanies it. Let me say that again. The reward that comes with leadership is worth the headache that accompanies it. Yes, leadership is hard. Yes, there's going to be moments as a leader, as you step out in obedience, as you step into what God has for you, there's going to be moments that you have to make a decision that somebody else doesn't like. There's going to be some turmoil. There's going to be some frustrating moments but I'm here to tell you, if you're following after God, if you're stepping out in faith, if you're stepping out in obedience, that the reward on the other side far outweighs the headache that accompanies leadership. With that being said, each of us has the potential to accomplish great things for the cause of Christ. And here's the truth of the matter. It doesn't matter how you see yourself. It doesn't matter if you've disqualified yourself. It doesn't matter if you've pushed yourself out of potential. What truly matters is how does God see you? And I'm here to tell you that God sees great value in you. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about Walmart brand great value. There's a difference. I'm saying God sees a high standard, a high level of quality in you. Well, pastor, how can you say that? You don't know my life. I don't, but God does. Yet for one reason or another, we're reluctant. We push back. We resist the call of what God has for our lives. I want you to understand, God sees incredible potential in your life. If we look to the Word of God time and time again, we run across individuals that the world has cast to the side, yet God has positioned for such a time as this. With David, the world saw an insignificant shepherd boy. Do you remember the story? David's father was told to, to bring all of his sons before him, and they were going to kind of pick out and anoint the next king. And dad pulls all the boys in but leaves David in the field because surely David, the scrawny little boy, he, he's not king material. See, with David, the world saw an insignificant shepherd boy. But God saw a giant slaying king. With Paul, formerly Saul, the world saw a zealot Christ hater, but God saw a passionate leader of the church. With Noah, 
the world saw a crazy old man, but God saw an obedient, faithful world changer. With Gideon, the world saw the weakest of the clan, but God saw a mighty warrior. And now with Moses, the world saw a basket case, stammering outcast. But God saw a mighty voice of freedom. I don't know what you see in yourself today. You may have classified yourself as a reluctant leader. You may not even put that term leader in. You're just reluctant. You've got all the excuses, all the reasons. I, I want you to understand today, God sees value in your life. In fact, in Jeremiah, the Bible says that God has a plan and a purpose of hope and a future for you. Yet for one reason or another, we've discounted ourselves. Stating, I'm just not qualified. I'm just not good enough. The world may have called you and deemed you a failure in so many ways. The world may have discounted you. The problem is many of us, we live in the, in the, the ruts of yesterday. We're stuck in our past. I can never get past what I did two weeks ago. I can never get past what I did last year. I can never get past what I did 20 years ago. Still allow that to define who you are today. But look what the Bible says. It says, anyone who belongs to Christ is a new person. Come on, look at your neighbor and say, anyone. If you're watching online today, put it in the chat. It says, anyone, anyone who belongs to Christ is a new person. You are not defined by that old lifestyle. You're not defined by the mistakes of yesterday. If you've given your life to Christ, if you've surrendered to him, if you've turned it over to him, the Bible says he changes you in a moment, in an instant. You are transformed. Anyone who belongs to Christ is a new person. The past is forgotten. Oh, come on, that's good news. That's good news. The past is forgotten, and everything is new. You are no longer defined by yesterday. You are no longer defined by who you once were. You've been grafted into the family of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You have a new address. You have a new definition of life. You have a new character trait that God's pouring into you, that God's crafting inside of you. But it's your choice. Will I be reluctant or am I willing to step into what God has? John chapter 15 says it this way, you didn't choose me, God says. God says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruits. Now, some of you, you struggle with that a little bit because you've never been chosen for anything. I remember in elementary school, when I went to gym class, I longed for the day that the coach 
would choose me as a team captain. You know why? Because when I was team captain, I got to choose people. But if I wasn't team captain, oftentimes it came down to two individuals, me and the other guy that nobody wanted. And finally I'd hear one of the team captains go, well, I guess I'll take Chris and you can take Johnny. Can I just tell you, from the very get-go, God has chosen you? The Bible says even while you were being formed in your mom's belly, God called you by name. God has a plan and a purpose for you. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, it says, No, in all these things you are more than conquerors through him who loves us. You're more than a conqueror. Pastor, I, I just struggle getting over this. I struggle getting past this. I struggle with this. I struggle with that. I want you to know when God is in you, when God is for you, nothing can stand against you. In fact, the Bible says that God has given us everything we need for living this godly life. It's time for us to step into the authority of what he has for us. Let me personalize that for you. It's time for you to step into the authority of what God has for you. No longer falling back into the, the realm of being a reluctant leader, but stepping forward and saying, Lord, what do you have for my life? God, what do you want to do in and through me? God, whatever you have, whatever you desire, Lord, I make myself available to you. The second choice that we see, the second character trait, is the arrogant oppressor. This was where Pharaoh was. See, when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, they say, hey, the Lord God, our Lord, the God of Israel, has this to tell you, let my people go. Look how Pharaoh responded. He said, is that so, retorted Pharaoh, and who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. Hold on to that. That's very important. He says, I don't know the Lord, and I will ne not let Israel go. Right out of the gate, we see Pharaoh responding with great arrogance, leaning upon self, depending upon self. I'm here to tell you, when you begin to trust in self more than you do God, it's going to lead you down a destructive path very quickly. Pharaoh was at this place. He says, I don't even know this God you're speaking of. Why would I care to listen to him? Why do I need to lend an ear to him? I don't need to obey him because I don't know him. I've got self. That's all I need. This arrogance, this oppressor began to formulate in his life right out of the gate. This is the attitude that Pharaoh had. As I looked up the word arrogant, according to the definition, it says this, having or showing an insulting attitude of people who believe that they are better, they're smarter, more important than other people. Have you ever met an arrogant person I mean, you walk in the room, and there's no doubt they believe they're the most important person in the room, that somehow the world turns around them. 
There's an arrogance about them. That was Pharaoh. Then I look up the word oppressor, and it's defined as a person or group that exercises authority or power over another in a harsh or burdensome way. And as I dug a little bit deeper into this idea of oppression, one source that I discovered stated that oppression is what happens when people grow their own sense of power. Come on. When we begin to grow our own sense of power, our own sense of comfort, our own sense of security at the expense of somebody else. Now, as a believer, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit produces a new fruit inside of us. So no longer as believers do we lean upon self. No longer as believers do we fall into our own strength, our own comfort, our own assurance. But now we allow the Holy Spirit to produce inside of us his nature, his character, which is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We allow this to be produced to grow, to mature inside of our lives so that we can't help but to share that upon those around us. But for Pharaoh, he had this idea that it was all about him. So if we combine these two definitions, an arrogant oppressor is a person who possesses a better-than-you, more-important-than-you attitude with the intent to use their authority and power in a harsh and burdensome way. This is the nature that's being demonstrated toward the nation of Israel by those that had enslaved them, the Egyptians. It seemed that the more that Moses and Aaron spoke with Pharaoh, the more harsh he became, the more that he pushed back. In fact, in verses 4 through 9, it says this. Pharaoh replied, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their task? Get back to work. Look, there are many of your people in the land, and you are stopping them from their work. The same day Pharaoh sent this order to the Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite foremen, Do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Make the people get it themselves. But still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they are crying out, let's go and offer sacrifice to our God. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. But here's what's interesting. Pharaoh's arrogance didn't stop there. God, one by one, sends ten different plagues upon the nation of Egypt. Beginning in chapter 7, we find these great plans, these plagues beginning to play out. It starts with all the water turning to blood. Then there's a a plague of frogs, gnats, flies, kind of feels like the state fair, yes? Could be a plague, I don't know. A deadly plague of lives on the livestock, boils covering their bodies, hail falling from the sky, locusts from everywhere, extreme darkness over the face of the earth. But how many of you know God's a God of completion, 
up to this point, Pharaoh kept pushing back each and every time. He says, I'm not going to let him go. I'm not going to let him go. I'm not going to let him go. But on the final plague, we saw results. This was the plague of the death of the firstborn. It says, and that night at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their livestock were killed. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night, and loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you said and be gone. And I look at this story and I look at these plagues and I wonder, why did God choose to do it this way. God could have, right from the front side, he could have just taken all the Israelite slaves, he could have scooped them up in his hands, and he could have transported them into the promised land where they would eventually get to. He could have just taken Pharaoh and picked Pharaoh up and flicked him out of the way. There was a lot of options God could have taken. But why did God choose to use 10 plagues to get him to this point? I began to think about that. And I realized that through all of this, it wasn't just a battle between Pharaoh and Moses. It was a spiritual battle. Right out of the gate, what did Pharaoh say? I don't know who your God is. I don't need to listen to your God. There was this spiritual battle struggle. And I believe that through all of this, there was an a increase in the faith of the Israelites. Now, sure, the Israelites would have moments when they would doubt God and, and God would bless them and they would rise back up in their faith. But in this moment, we see their faith beginning to rise as God is pouring out his favor upon them. And I look at our lives today and I realize that just as Moses and Pharaoh and Aaron were all involved in this spiritual battle, in our lives today, we face spiritual battles. That struggle that you're having with that individual, could it be that there's a spiritual battle raging? In fact, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul is writing, and he says a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all, come on, say all, put on all all of God's armor. Now, if you look up that word all in the original language, it's a very interesting word. It literally means all. Yeah, yeah, nothing is left out. Put on all of God's armor. Why is that important? Why didn't they just say, put on God's armor? 
Because if we miss a part of the armor, something is not covered in the midst of the spiritual battle. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, the belt of truth, the shoes of readiness. If we don't clothe ourselves in all of the armor of God, that when the battle comes, when the difficulty comes, when the opposition comes, something is not going to be protected. So here Paul says, put on all. Don't leave any of it out. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. And he reminds us we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor. Didn't he just say that? Now, the first time he said, put on all of God's armor. Now he says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor. Why does he repeat it? Because sometimes we miss the instruction the first time through. Come on, any of you ever guilty of missing the instruction the first time through? I had like a few ladies in the house, no guys raised their hand. Come on, gentlemen. How many times does your wife need to tell you, take out the trash? Come on. Sometimes we don't hear the instruction the first time around. So Paul takes a moment, he reminds us a second time, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground. I love that. Then after the battle... After you fought the good fights, the battle has raged all around you. The wind has blown. The turmoil has come. The frustration has occurred. The arguments have happened. All of this has happened around you, but you've clothed yourself in the, in the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the shoes of readiness. You have yourself clothed in the full armor of God. The battle is raging, and once the battle is over, you're still standing. Why? Because you're more than a conqueror. And then I love how he starts the next sentence. Stand your ground. Don't waver. Sometimes we're guilty when the battle is over. We suddenly go, okay, now I can take off some of this stuff. Now, now I can relax a little bit. It's going to be okay. Boom, there it goes. Church, I want you to understand that even when the battle appears to be over, the enemy hasn't stopped. Even when the battle seems to be over in your mind, even when the winds stop blowing, even when the waves start cra stop crashing, even when it feels like everything is calm once again, it's time to stand your ground. Why? Because it's a battle raging. Therefore, God has not called us to be arrogant oppressors. He's called us to be followers, faithful followers after him. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it gives us the instruction of how we are to live life. He tells us this, you must take upon the same attitude of Christ Jesus. Though he was fully God, he didn't cling to that 
He gave up everything for you. Church, I want to challenge you. Don't allow yourself to be a reluctant leader. Don't allow yourself to be an arrogant oppressor. But look at our third choice, the all-sufficient Father. Now, this isn't for us. This is for God, and we are to tap into God. God is our all-sufficient Father. We see through this great story that God is faithful even in the difficult times of life. Even when the Israelites have been in slavery for 430 years, God is still faithful. God is still there. He still hears their hearts cry. In fact, in the Old Testament, one of the names of God is El Shaddai. In the original language, it literally means the all-sufficient God or God Almighty. That's exactly what God desired to be for the nation of Israel. But truth be told, that's what God desires to be for you. God is enough, and he's more than enough. He takes his all-sufficiency and he applies it to our insufficiency. Come on, let me say that again. He takes his all-sufficiency and he applies it to our insufficiency. He makes a way where it seems impossible. In the struggles of your life, God is enough. In the hope that you pursue, God is more than enough. In the road that you travel, God is still more than enough. Look what he said to Moses. He said, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. In a time when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, in a time when they felt forgotten and hopeless, El Shaddai, God Almighty, the all-sufficient one, appears, begins to speak into the life of a once reluctant leader, offering a promise to deliver the Israelites. How does El Shaddai show up in this story? He delivers as promised. Moses calls out to Pharaoh, let my people go. Through a course of plagues that have happened, eventually Pharaoh allows the Israelites to go free. They begin their journey. They're heading out of Egypt, and they come to a roadblock, if you would, the Red Sea. Here's the problem. The Red Sea is in front of them. The Egyptian army is behind them. What happens? Once again, El Shaddai steps in. God parts that water. The Israelites walk across on dry land. But that's another story for another time. Next Sunday morning, we're going to dive in to what happened as they came to that place of the Red Sea. So in your life today, where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself a reluctant leader? Do you find yourself... An aggressor? Do you find yourself an oppressor? Do you find yourself arrogance? I'm going to challenge you. Would you turn your life over to El Shaddai, our all-sufficient, almighty God? 
Thank you for listening to the Encounter Church podcast. We pray that this message was a blessing and an encouragement to you.